Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Anya Bernstein. She's an assistant professor of anthropology at Harvard University and winner of the AAR Book Award in Analytical Descriptive Studies. She's here to speak to us about her book, Religious Bodies, Politic, Rituals of Sovereignty in Buryat Buddhism, published with the University of Chicago Press. Congratulations and thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Many of the listeners of this will probably be unfamiliar with this community. Can you set the stage for us a little bit? Who are the Buryats? In what context were you investigating them? And how did this project emerge? Buryats are most ethnically are most closely related to Mongolians, uh, linguistically, ethnically, geographically. In fact, after the border was drawn between China and Russia in the beginning of the 18th century, it separated these northern Mongol communities, which ended up in the Russian Empire. So today, the majority of Buryats live in Russia, but there are also communities of Buryats who live in Mongolia and small community in China. Buryats are Tibetan Buddhists, um, not all of them, but Tibetan Buddhism is quite widespread and it was transmitted quite late in the 18th century, came from Tibet via Mon Mongolia and since then the Buryats have maintained religious links with both Mongolia and Tibet. What I was interested in when I started this project is that these ties have been discontinued during most of the 20th century First, because uh, the Buryats I studied for the most of the 20th century, they lived in the Soviet Union where religion was suppressed and openly discouraged. So a lot of these links were disconnected until about early 90s. So I was really interested in religious revival. That was the original sort of simplest uh, question that started this project. I can also say how this project emerged. I originally was interested in Tibetan Buddhism back when I was doing a master's program in visual anthropology. So I was making films about Tibetan Buddhists in exile. So I was regularly going to India and at, at some point I met Russian speaking monks in India and I really knew almost nothing about Buryati at the time. So I was wondering who these people are. And, you know, this spoke fluent Russian, they helped me, uh, they helped make connections because they also spoke uh, Tibetan and uh, some of them spoke Buryat. So I learned that they were from Russia, they were one of the, they live in Buryatia, which is a republic bordering uh, Mongolia. They're from one of the three Russian regions where Tibetan Buddhism is very prominent. Uh, one is uh, Kalmykia, which is technically in Europe. Then you have Tuva, which is on the border of Mongolia, Kazakhstan and Russia, and Buryatia. So for my next project, I decided that I might do conceptually a more interesting project if perhaps I switch from Tibetan Buddhism in exile in Dharamsala, where I started in 2001, and if I go north to Buryatia to investigate. And that's where my interest in these transnational connections appeared, because first I met these Buryats in India, and then I was told that a very important, uh, that's how Buryats uh, referred to him, Tibetan Lama, lives in Buryatia. And because I was studying visual anthropology, I was about to make my thesis film for this program. So I went to Buryatia and made a film in Buryatia about a Tibetan Lama. So at this point, I was very well aware of these connections between Russia and India. Now, many of these transnational connections are mediated through death, reincarnation, institutional affiliations. 
Can you talk about how these connections play out in the lived world? So, of course, you have the actual connections, the pilgrimages. And in my book, I track uh, these pilgrimages historically. So historically, Buryats were well-connected with the larger Asian Buddhist world. Some Buryats went to study in Mongolia. Some went as far as Lhasa to study in, in the monasteries there. Then these sites were disconnected. Once they were revived, the geopolitics of the region uh, changed a lot. So Buryats started going not to Drepung Monastery, which is one of the three largest monastic seats in Tibet that was in Tibet, but they went to the reconstructed smaller Drepung Monastery that was located in South India. So technically, uh, this pilgrimage that used to take almost a year, if you visualize a map, it went from Siberia to Tibet, you know, on camels and yaks and horses. So it was an overland pilgrimage. And the pilgrimages in the 90s were completely transformed because Buryat monks now had to do it in a sort of very socialist or post-socialist way because they first to get to Drepung, which is located in the South Indian state of Karnataka, and there is no direct North to South Asia connection, so they had to travel to Moscow by plane and cross five time zones to get there, and then they have to cross four time zones back east to get to Delhi, and then you take a train down to Karnataka and get to the monastery. And then there is a connection in, in the reverse way, because if few Tibetan lamas in the 90s and in the 2000s went as teachers of Buddhism and settled in the Buryat Republic. And some of them even got Russian citizenship. So this connection goes two way. So these, as far as actual connections, exchanges, travels are concerned, but also, and this is also a big part of what I was interested in in this project are these imaginary connections, right? These are more about identities or about positioning. Buryat are technically very marginal both to Russia, both to Asia and to Tibetan Buddhist world. So they're consistently positioning and repositioning themselves to all of these, all of these entities. And this spurs a lot of major debates that I address in, in this book. Now, one of the issues that comes up in the post-Soviet period are related to what you call treasure hunts, related to hidden Buddhist relics, things like books or even mummies. How do these treasures help reconfigure cosmologies of time and space for the Buryat community? Relics and bodies that were found in the ground that I uh, write about in my books, they're these material objects that provide a very tangible material connection to the past. So I, in one of my chapters in the book, I take as a case study the bodies of two lamas, one actual body, and one is an imaginary body that was not found, but they think the lama was buried somewhere. And the exhumations of one of these lamas triggered these sort of miraculous events when objects, Buddhist objects, Buddhist relics that are not bodies and, but just um, ritual instruments, um, books started appearing from the ground. So I argue in my books that these sorts of processes, first they work to reconsecrate the landscape. So they literally emplace Buddhism into the land, right? They claim this landscape as Buddhist because it has to be pointed out that since Buddhism came to Buryatia quite late, it did not spread equally across various regions. 
So there are some regions where Buddhism just started reaching in the beginning of the 20th century when uh, the Russian Revolution happened and religion was suppressed. So these regions have, you know, what technically is called shamanism, which is more strong than Buddhism. And what I noticed that it is specifically consciously or unconsciously, it is in these um, regions that some Buddhist lamas discover these objects. So they have explanations why certain objects appear in certain places, because they claim it's, it's time. They weren't there two months ago, but now they're there because it's time. It's time uh, for Buddhism to anchor itself in this place. So in this sense, you know, reconsecration of landscape, you can say that relics reorient space. But they also rewrite time because, as I already mentioned, relics are these material objects and they're very useful to draw connection between the present and the past. They literally materialize the past. So not only can you rewrite space, you can also rewrite time. So I give some specific examples in the book how certain relics can lengthen Buddhist history uh, because they are found, they, they say such and such lama left this relic and he was the reincarnation of another lama and this whole genealogy and lineage you know, linking Buryatia all the way to ancient India to origins of Buddhism. It's even used politically. There are some uh, factions, uh, I, I want to say, in Buryat Buddhism that argue what this Buryat Buddhism should be like. It's, there is there is some people who say that Buryat Buddhism should very strictly follow um, Tibetan, what they call Tibetan model, which means proper monastic training, celibacy, and basically emulating the model of Tibetan monastic education. And more ethno-nationalist-oriented actors claim that it should, Buddhism should downplay its international ties and assert itself as a truly independent Buryat religion. So um, these relics could be used in these political strategies. For example, there was one genealogy that was linked from one body and relics associated with this body directly to India, sort of rhetorically and discursively bypassing Tibet, because the relationships between Buryats and Tibetans are sometimes uh, very strained. So you also look at this through competing identities, and what you found was pilgrims' participation, both monks and nuns, in Indian monasteries shaped them in particular ways in relation to religious status and privilege that don't always correspond to indigenous understandings of authority, gender, or national loyalty. For the Buryats, how do these competing identities play out in the modern period? Are they able to be reconciled? Right. So I first noticed that when I was living in a monastery in South India, in the South Indian Drepung, I was staying close to the dorms of Buryat monks. And at some point, we had a large amount of pilgrims who arrived, not just Buryats who arrived all the way from Siberia, but also uh, a lot of Tibetans because Dalai Lama came and he was consecrating one of the, one of the new buildings. And it is there that I noticed, because previously to the, the event, I was mostly communicating with monks, uh, Buryat monks who study in India, I have to maybe mention this if I haven't mentioned that, some Buryat monks go and establish themselves in Japan Monastery, Goman College in South India, and they spend a uh, different amount of times there, you know, from five to 15 years uh, studying there. So until a certain point, I haven't seen many women there, and then I saw these pilgrims. And then I kept seeing them as I moved across India for my research. I went from north to south, I spent some time researching in Dharamsala, 
And in Durham Cells, there is a very large female community. But what happens with these transnational journeys for the, the monks, it basically raises their prestige when they come back to Buryatia, because even if they haven't finished, and a lot of monks, for various reasons, political, economic, they don't really finish the full monastic curriculum, which is very long. You, it could be up to 20 years, so a lot of them have their visas expired, so they come back, but they come back with these race statuses, so their status is much higher, they can, even if they haven't finished the full curriculum, they can teach, whereas I discovered that women traveling to India is um, overtly discouraged, at least by the established Buryat Sangha, which is sort of a nationalist wing of uh, Buryat Buddhism, claiming this indigenous Buryat tradition that is separate from Tibetan Buddhism and is a national tradition. And what happens when monks go to India, they go within a certain structure, but there is no special structure for women institutionally in Buryat Buddhism. There doesn't exist a female monasticism. So a lot of women, what they do, they become disciples of particular Tibetan lamas. So it's considered sort of unpatriotic to bypass these local Buddhist structures and go straight to these transnational circuits. So what I found out is that women were mostly involved directly in the transnational circuits that bypass local religious institutions. So a lot of monks sort of treat that type of pilgrimage with despise. They say that these are the women who couldn't realize themselves through family. Uh, they are divorced, so they don't have kids, and these women are not nuns. They are just female pilgrims who become apprentices uh, with certain lamas. And I did meet a couple of nuns, uh, not very many. I knew two, and I, one of them is no longer a nun now. And they not, let's say, not held in high esteem by monks. And even by local Buryats, the idea that a woman would shave her head and, you know, don a monastic robe is not very encouraged. And there are all kinds of different arguments for that in, on the local level. Not just from monks, but from local women, you know, from from saying that uh, we are, we are, it's a very Soviet nomination, numerically small peoples that was used uh, to classify certain indigenous peoples. So Buryats actually is one of, the, one of the larger groups because the number of some half a million in, in Russia, but they say we're, we're, we're sort of small-numbered uh, people, we shouldn't lose women to celibacy, so if the women are linked to, you know, rep reproduction and nationalism, so all of these discourses come up when it comes to the involvement of women in Buddhism, in Buryatia. Now, you also focus on a particular lay ritual practice where the body is symbolically offered to non-human recipients. Can you tell us about this ritual and how we can read it in terms of the transformation of ideas of gender, the dead, and, and this relationship in, in exchange? I was really interested in the Cho ritual, which is it's a type of Buddhist meditation suppose, that is supposed to cultivate non-attachment to the ego and to the body. Uh, so during this meditation, the meditator ejects his or her consciousness from the body and then dismembers the body in the meditation and then offers it, feeds the body to different kinds of spirits. So I was really interested in the classic uh, Tibetan ritual, but I was really interested that it became very popular with women. And it became popular because um, the leader of Mongolian Buddhists, who is actually 
ethnically Tibetan and was living in India. He died, died now a few years ago. He was the main practitioner of this ritual. And so he gathered a lot of Buryats as well as Mongolians around him in Dharamsala in India that practiced this ritual. Obviously, uh, Cho ritual offered women some place in Buddhism. They viewed it as an appropriate expression of female religiosity. It provided a place for them outside of monastic practices because you you don't, don't have to be a monk or a nun to practice it. And it was also interested as I was interviewing Buryat women that practice it because they interpreted Cho as having links with shamanism because it deals directly with the spirits. And a lot of these women also practice shamanism. So they would say things like, you know, it's easier to, for women to practice Cho because we we women are more given, for example, because right, Cho is about, is about given of the most precious thing that you have, your own body. And then they would say we have connection with certain spirits, so the women who used to um, practice shamanism in Buryatia, now they found their place in Buddhism where they sort of can in incorporate it. But the most interesting part of the Cho ritual is that it, it's not just about giving the body, it's also about conversion, because at the end of the ritual, you once the spirits are fed, um, you sort of preach the Dharma. To them, they convert you. Convert them. You ask them to not be harmful and to benefit all sentient beings. So it's a kind of uh, symbolic con conversion. And when I ask these uh, women what kinds of spirits they are communicating with during the ritual, a lot of them invoked the notion of karmic creditors, which is a notion in Tibetan Buddhism. It's some it's someone from your past life to whom you owe some kind of karmic debt. Very often it's your parents. So a lot of them said we are doing this because our parents did not really have a chance to experience the Dharma. There was no Buddhism, uh, Buddhism during the Soviet Union, during this uh, generation of their parents. By participating in this ritual, we are sort of converting these ancestors. Uh, we are paying our karmic debt and by preaching the Dharma to these spirits, some of which are our ancestors, our sort of socialist ancestors who did not, who grew up with atheism and did not have a chance to encounter Buddhism in their lifetimes. Now, you also look a little bit about Buddhism in a post-socialist era. Can you talk about some of the changes that happened during this period in terms of uh, religious identities and economic exchange? How do Buryat Buddhists see themselves in the contemporary period? Well, it, it's mostly relates to the debates around identities that I already mentioned, sort of a more internationalized version of Tibetan Buddhism versus local indigenous tradition and how, how these are formed. Then the big part of the contemporary debates is about Buddhism and modernity. And I think this is very characteristic for um, various traditions in general, not just Buddhism. There is always this reflection on whether what is the originary form of Buddhism? Is our Buddhism a kind of a degraded version of an earlier, pure version of Buddhism? Or what do we have to do to correspond to it? Buddhism in Buryatia, you could say that it's shaped by globalization, shaped by market forces, but there's also suspicion of market forces. There's always there these anxieties. Is it becoming commercialized? Does it correspond to what Buddhism is supposed to be? And so this imaginary Buddhism is currently being constructed. And the place of ideal Buddhist development also changes. It could be Tibet, it could be ancient India. So it's really constantly rhetorically shaped and reshaped. 
Finally, how do you imagine that others in the study of religion can benefit from your work, either in applying your conclusions or approaching your methodologies? When I started the study, I was interested in mobility, not just spatial mobility, but also temporal through time. That's, how, that's why I was interested in incarnate lamas and relics. So my main methodology was multi-sided ethnography, as well as you know, the usual anthropological methods of oral history, archival research, participant observation. So I would say uh, multi-sided ethnography is one of my methods that could maybe benefit to someone. Then uh, I approach, most simply put, my project was about the intersection of religion and, and politics. So I was interested in how religion was at the heart of remaking and reshaping of Boyat worlds, about uh, how political imaginaries and cultural forms are shaped by religion. And I was interested in the political and social processes that characterize religious revivals. And I was also interested in transnationalism, so I just wanted to outline my broad interest. But of course, there are a lot of different ways to study this connection between politics, religion, and culture, and a lot of studies that do that. So in my case, I decided to approach it through the trope of the body, but not just the body as a symbol or as a metaphor, uh, but literally, I took all of these bodies that I have in the book as specific material sites where political processes are ins literally inscribed. So I approach this connection between religion and, and the body not as a kind of exegesis of how a particular religious tradition, Buddhism in this case, of how they understand the body, but what kind of body politics is informed by these Buddhist concepts and practices and what this body politic does and how it works. Well, Anya, thank you for writing a wonderful book and congratulations on your award. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>